was it Churchill, I think, didn't like one of the portraits that was painted of him. And it is to do with that sort of uh, people seeing us sometimes things that we don't see. Well, what I'd like to do is take a series of portraits and just ask you what you think the artist saw in Jesus from what we're going to look at. So here's um, today's portrait. And this comes not from a painting, but from a film. A bit otherworldly, yes, thank you. Yes, the eyes are very penetrating, aren't they? Yes, looking beyond. What sort of culture do you think this generated this? Sorry? Hollywood. <laughs> You're very close. This was made as a, a television series uh, by a joint American and Italian company. And it was a five-episode uh, series called Jesus of Nazareth. And it was then edited together into a film and released by Hollywood. And it was um, directed by somebody called Zeffirelli. I, I, I know it came to mind immediately. And he um, helped write some of the script and also did the, the photography as the director. Um, what do you think, I mean, what do you think Zeffirelli thought Jesus was like or about or... Yes. Yes, he's not the pale Galilean as some of the poets once described Jesus. The story goes that the um, the Pope had seen a biopic of, I think it was Moses, an Old Testament character, and thought it would be very good to do one of Jesus. And Zeffirelli had done that. And so the Pope said to Zeffirelli, because Zeffirelli was a, a, a Roman Catholic Christian uh, and a film director, and he said, I'd love you to do one of Jesus. And he said, no, 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 and, and so held off. And then eventually he weakened and uh, Anthony Burgess, I think it was, helped with the script. So they wrote and produced it together. Uh, and just listen, this is what the critics said. And I think it says, it helps us to think a little bit about um, portraits. The producers at first considered choosing a well-known star who would draw large audiences for the role of Christ. Actually, that, I think that should be choosing a well-known star for the role of Christ that should have it's Wikipedia, should have, which would have drawn a large audience. The first actor they thought of was Dustin Hoffman. And after that, they thought of Al Pacino. However, this, the filmmakers feared that the looks of these famous people would not match the popular perception of Jesus held by the American public. 
So they wanted to, to talk about Jesus in a way that the American public would be able to say, ah, oh, yes, that's the Jesus we imagine. Um, eventually, the character's North European appearance in the series, as you can see, I mean, he doesn't look very Jewish, does he? Or Middle Eastern. Um, and, I'm, I, and I think the blue eyes, which are really striking, Robert Powell was the actor. Um, and and he, he's, it's interesting. He said that that film has stayed with him for the rest of his life. And some people have praised the way he, he did, he acted the part. Others have actually got pictures of him. And instead of having prayer things in their sort of homes, they've got pictures of Robert Powell. Because Robert Powell makes them think of Jesus, which makes them think of prayer. So it's a pretty tangential thing. But, but the comment was this. The actors were chosen without regard to historical ethnographic accuracy. The filmmakers wanted to communicate, and so this was their portrait of Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, I think when we do see Jesus face to face in heaven, I think I will recognize him, but I don't think he'll look what I expect. There'll be enough there to know that's the Lord, but I doubt he'll look in the way that I imagine he might look. Or perhaps the same for you. For none of us really know what he does look like. Isn't it interesting that the Gospels don't even tell you the color of his hair? Did he have a beard? What height was he? Was he good-looking? I mean, I, all these sort of things which images will bring to light. Yeah. Well, I, th I think there's just a history of people idealising what Jesus looked like and using their own cultural pictures of what they imagined he'd like and using that. So here, you've got an American person saying, well, he must be um, young, but we know that. He must be sort of clear-sighted. I mean, I don't know how many Mediterranean people have these blue eyes. Um, he must be clean-shaven, very carefully manicured. Well, that's apart from the hair, which is all right, because, you know, young people do that. So it's a very sort of, um, how can I put it? Slightly tame, but accessible. Yeah? Sorry, the, we, what, sorry one second. That's right. We had that. We had one of those last week. Exactly that. So yeah. You tend to see it according to your culture, and what matters is that you listen to him and follow him rather yes. than exactly. Sure. Okay. He was a Middle Eastern, and so his skin would have been a bit more um, swarthy, or, or yeah. Well, now that's just a way. That's what I'm saying. Is everybody creates their picture of Jesus, with something already in their mind. And when we come to look at Luke, we're looking at what Luke had in his mind as he portrayed Jesus. But he's doing it as a literary rather than a sort of a, a, a picture of a... Hello? And as a literary portrait painter, they have these tools. And the key tool, the one that is really interesting, is that first one, the shape of the text. That can, can reveal so much. And so we're going to look at that tonight and see how that works. So, let's begin. This is Jesus, the history maker. You'll notice the title is Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Luke, Acts is often put together. Now, could I just take a little time to explain why we're looking at Luke, Acts together? I think for, for many, they've noticed it. Do you remember the dedication 
of, of the gospel. I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then in Acts, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, and so on. These are two volumes of the same book. They're like uh, part one and part two. And if you look at it, they overlap. If you read Luke through, and then you move into Acts, there's that one overlap. And the overlap is when Jesus ascends to heaven. So Luke's gospel finishes with that, and telling the disciples to wait there. Book of Acts opens with that, saying the disciples should wait in Jerusalem. And the other thing, those who study Greek in, in great detail, they will tell you that the style of writing is the same in both the first volume and the second volume. And the style of writing is Luke is far more elegant than the everyday uh, writing of most of the, of the New Testament, which is everyday Greek, Koine Greek. This is slightly more, the, certainly the preface, that first bit we've just had read, is beautiful classical Greek. It's, it's one sentence, and it all balances out, if, if you'd like to you know, look at it in that detail. So here we've got somebody, a literary person, who's as alert to what he's writing about, offering us two volumes, and then in some way, John's Gospel sort of plumped in the middle, and so we tend to see them as two separate books. But actually, it's good and very helpful to see them as one. Is that reasonable? Oh, good, thank you. So, let's look at the shape. The shape of Luke's Gospel looks like this. We have a preface we've had read to us, we have the beginnings with John the Baptist and Jesus. Then we have that first period called the ministry in Galilee. Then the second period, which is the journey to Jerusalem. The ministry in Jerusalem with the passion, finally with the resurrection. And that's the shape of the gospel. Let's look at the shape of Acts. Well, you have the birth of the church at the beginning. Then you have what is really the ministry of Peter. And that takes us from chapter 3 up to chapter 12 in Acts. And during that time, um, we see uh, Peter ministering, uh, preaching in, at, uh, at Pentecost. We see Peter sort of being put in prison and released. We see Peter um, having to go and explain why he's after this vision of he's, he's baptized Gentiles and started welcoming people into the church, which was not at all what was expected by the Jews, even Jewish Christians. And then the second big chunk of Acts is the ministry of Paul. And what we've got there are the three mission, missionary journeys, which uh, you, you probably know about. The interesting thing is that Paul was based in Antioch, not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was essentially a very sort of conservative place. And those, even those who came to Christ still had a lot of thinking shaped by that area. And the view that it was the best way of being faithful was to be a loyal, regular, disciplined attender at the temple and in the synagogue. And Antioch was the heart of the missionary heart of the, the New Testament church. It's there that Paul and Barnabas set out and so on. You've got the three journeys. And then the third part of Acts here is when Paul gets this word that he's got to go to Jerusalem. And people came and said, do you remember? If you go to Jerusalem, you, and, uh, somebody had a, a vision and then somebody else tied his hands to show you, you'll go and change. What is ahead of you is not good. And Paul went up to Jerusalem, was arrested there, and then because of the riots was moved down to Caesarea, that's the, the, on the coast, on the port there. 
and then appealed to, as a Roman citizen to Caesar, and so he was sent, sent off to Rome. And so we have the, the journey to Rome in a boat. Remember, he got shipwrecked on Malta, and then finally arrived in Rome. And the book of Acts finishes in Rome. So isn't that interesting? If you put these two together, you now get the sweep of the way Luke Acts imagines the ministry of Jesus. Okay, The first bit, you've got the preface, Jesus in Galilee, the journey to Jerusalem, and Jesus in Jerusalem, death and resurrection. That's the book of the Gospel of Luke. Then the next three, Acts. What, now, what stands out from that? The first thing I would suggest is this. Luke would like the reader to understand that Jesus actually was an historical figure. He begins by saying, I've gone through this and I've given you an orderly account. I've researched it. I, he was a second generation Christian. He never met Jesus. I've researched this and I've set it out so the text reads that you may be certain of your faith. So Luke was really clear that that was the way we grounded our faith. And so you get here now the historical movement which starts in Galilee, goes through Jerusalem and winds up in Rome. That geographical movement actually is saying something because Luke thought that Jesus was the saviour of the world. And therefore, we, we begin in Jerusalem where um, the Holy Spirit came and Pentecost happened and we've, we finish in Rome. And, it, and it's very interesting. Do you know how the book of Acts finishes? Paul was staying in Rome for two years he stayed there and people came and went to see him and he taught and explained the gospel to them. He established, uh, he built up the church that was already in Rome. Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. It was the capital of the rest of the world. The growth of the early church then spread across, as I've just said, the Roman Empire. And finally, the, the way to understand that this, Jesus is really a historical figure is to look at this story, this long story going through these episodes. So Luke is convinced that if you know that history, that'll really help you understand Jesus and the scale of his, what he's done. But I think it gets even more interesting when you look more closely. You've got the first period, which was Jesus in Galilee. That's a slightly orange. Do the colours show? Yes, then the next, which is light blue, Jerusalem, those two periods. And then thirdly, the three periods going out to Rome. And, and this is the key. What Luke does, he wants to say to you, Jesus is a history maker. Every advance along here follows an explicit command of Jesus. And that's how Jesus makes history. So if we begin at the beginning, number one. In Nazareth, Jesus, in Luke 4, stood up and read from the Gospel of Isaiah. We're going to look at it in a bit more detail in a moment. And said, today this is true and, and here I am. And this was the beginning of his ministry. So that Jesus' ministry was inaugurated by Jesus' word. And his word created that ministry. And then in, in Luke 9.51... Jesus said, I now know, after a time of prayer, I must go to Jerusalem. And people trying to stop him. But he said, no, I must go. This is what my father said. I must go to Jerusalem. And Luke then takes the next bit from 9, right the way, um, oh, it's dropped out, up to 90, 
to show you that that whole journey to Jerusalem is Jesus gradually working closer and closer till he gets to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, you get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that, Lord, what, I want your will to be what I do. Do you remember he wanted to, he, he was there uh, just the night before being arrested. And then he says after the resurrection of the disciples, the next bit is that you must wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. And so they did. And then in verse five, sorry, number five, the instructions to Peter to welcome the Gentiles. There was this vision of this, do you remember the, the sheet coming down with all the animals? And if you notice, the text runs and Peter said, uh, Lord, that's the way the, the, the early Christians described Jesus. What do you want me to do about this? What is this about? And Jesus explained that this was the inclusion of the things that you thought were unfit. They are welcome. They have a place. Six. When in Acts 13, um, the elders, quite a small group of elders, were praying, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. In fact, there's a part in, yeah, we've jumped, uh, it, just a bit earlier is when Paul himself became a Christian. Do you remember he, he was blinded and thrown to the ground? And there was just this light. And what does Paul say? Who is it, Lord? He recognized it was Jesus. And so Jesus spoke to Paul and said, I have things for you to do. And then finally, uh, verse 7, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and on to Rome. It was, again, that sense, I've prayed, I've listened, the Lord has told me I am to go to Jerusalem. Luke is saying, every stage has been inaugurated by Jesus. That's why he's the history maker. People did what he said. Well, there's one other thing which I think is even more interesting, and we'll see it now as we look at Luke chapter 4. So if you'd like to get the Bible in front of you and turn to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Well, no, actually, we'll start at 16, I think. Um, it's page 1031, if that's a quicker way of finding it. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus explaining what he's about to do. Now, what is he about to do? What do you think that Old Testament, that Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah 61 and a little bit put in them from Isaiah 58. What do you think those words mean that Jesus is now about to do? People have had discussions about these words for ages. Down the centuries, people have debated what could Jesus be driving at. 
Any suggestions? Yes? Okay, so he was fulfilling the prophecy, pointing that he would be the king. Uh, yes? Okay, the entry introduced them as a king. Yeah. Okay. What, what else do you think it looks like? Sorry, yes, Mary. So that Isaiah points forward to God intervening in a special way and now Jesus is saying that is happening in him and he's going to do things which actually help people who are in need. Yes, thank you. Go on. That's, thank you. That's one of the debates that's going on. We'll come back to that in a second. But I think that it, is it just poor spiritually or poor materially or poor socially or, or poor how? Yes, well, he was the servant that God was sending. It was the, the song, in his, it's part of Isaiah, it's looking forward to God's servant who's going to come and be the agent of bringing in salvation. And Jesus is saying, I am he. Yes. Sorry? Well, that's the... It, it certainly would include that, yes. Yes. One thing, if you look carefully at Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus read through and stopped where it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the next line says, and the day of judgment. And Jesus did not quote that bit. Jesus is actually talking very positively about what he's going to bring. He doesn't use judgment language here. He looks, he, he's, this is the language of hope. Well, if we, let, let's look. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. That's the first thing. It is clear that whatever Jesus is about to do, the Spirit of the Lord is key. He begins with that. And if you think, Jesus began anointed with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, he went through the temptations. He was filled, baptized, uh, overflowing, anointed with the Spirit and went into his ministry. And what happened to the church? They were told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you in the same way, until the Holy Spirit enables you to do these uh, spiritual things. Whatever happens, whatever this mission is about, it is spiritual at its core. And it cannot be done by any other way. It is... It is better to wait until the Holy Spirit comes before you start getting busy. And I think for some of the disciples, that's what, that waiting in Jerusalem, as they've been told to, must have been frustrating. But that's the first thing that Jesus says. His ministry is spirit-anointed. Well, because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor are the marginalized. The poor are not the people that you would think are the main focus of what God wants to do. 
But that was what he said it is, didn't it? And if you look, that anointing to proclaim good news to the poor repeats through um, the, both the gospel and through Luke and through Acts. Good news. What's the good news? He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Well, prisoners, do, you, do we mean literal prisoners in prison? Do we mean people who are imprisoned by disease? Uh, some people would say that their experience of the demonic in those days, having these spirits within them, was as if they'd been taken over. They were, they were powerless. They were impotent. To proclaim good news to the poor. Poor in spirit. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Literal material. Well, in fact, Luke would like to give us an answer to that because Luke knows that this is actually quite general and it can be interpreted in different ways. So Luke says, dear reader, O Theophilus, um, can I help you out? And Theophilus says, of course you can. Well, go on then. How are you going to do it? Well, says Luke, I'm going to use this gospel to do it, this story, these series of stories. And if you're alert, O Theophilus, of course I am, my dear chap, I paid you to do this. Oh, right, fine, you're his patron. Um, you'll notice how I do it. If you read, you don't need to do it now, if you read on to Luke 7, just turn over, 7.18. So, 7.18, John's disciples told him all about these things. That's the things that Jesus was doing. Calling two of them, Jesus said, so John the Baptist sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? For those who work, study how stories work, when something's important, it's often repeated. So this was a really important question. It's, like, it's the same uh, phrase exactly again. At that very time, verse 21, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he then turns to the messengers and says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, do you see that list? It's very close to the list in Isaiah, isn't it, that Jesus just read. You see, what Luke is saying, O Theophilus, if you'd like to know what Jesus was going on about, was meaning and intending in that, John the Baptist is being used now to help the reader. Because John the Baptist has exactly the same dilemma. Is this, what is this about? And so it is crafted so that Luke, uh, portrays John the Baptist's disciples asking about the very things they've seen and Jesus says well go back and tell John what you've seen so if you want to know what Luke 4 means and, and that's the manifesto in, in uh, Nazareth all you have to do is do what these disciples do is to look at all that happens between Luke 4 and Luke 7 so for the reader that's you and me when we come to that John the Baptist's disciples are being told to just go and tell um, John the Baptist what they've seen. And what they've seen, as far as the reader's concerned, is all that's been set out for us. Yeah? So what we've got here is the answer in a narrative form. 
it looks a bit like this. If you move to, if we move to the next bit of the slide, that little list there on the right is the Luke 7 we've just re read. And you see it finishes with, with the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So the first list begins with proclaiming good news to the poor and this one ends by the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And if you want to know what that means, just do this. Note to Theophilus. To find out more about the good news proclaimed to the poor, please read Luke 4 to Luke 7. There you are. There's the answer. And I think if we read the text more, then we would actually see that this kind of um, way of expanding things works. Now, just to save you the time, this is what happens between Luke 4 and Luke 7, okay? So Luke 4, the synagogue, Luke 4, we then go to Capernaum, then we go to Peter's home where Jesus uh, healed his mother-in-law, hence he must have been married food for thought. Um, then we went late Gennesaret, then Peter's called, then he goes and heals a man with leprosy, then somebody who's paralyzed is let down through the roof, he's healed, but his sins are forgiven as well. Uh, a tax collector called Levi, he's called, and then he has a banquet, and he invites sinners and, and tax collectors, and they all gather around, and people complain. Then the, the Pharisees talk about fasting, and Jesus talks about new wine and new wineskins. Then there's eating corn in, in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath as they walk through the fields. And then Jesus healing somebody in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Prayer. Then after prayer, Jesus calls the twelve and gives them the name apostles. Then uh, they have what's sometimes it's described as the Sermon on the Plain compared to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Um, that's in six. And then uh, Jesus had a bit more healing. A centurion's son, a Gentile, had, the, the servant rather, is, is healed. Then there's the widow's son of Nain, the dead the dead son is raised back to life. And then uh, John the Baptist come with the question, and just in case anything's been missed, Luke fits in a bit, and Jesus did, uh, so cast out evil spirits, he gave the sight to the blind, and actually did some more healing. Illnesses were healed. And then he says, there you are. Luke has given us the answer it is spiritual in the sense that it is spiritual, but it is not spiritual in the sense that we use the word spiritual, because often we use the word spiritual to mean inward and to do with our hearts and souls. It is spiritual in the sense that it is led by the Spirit, and it is of the Spirit, but it is clear that what is going on impacts on the everyday life of the people involved, caught up in this. So Luke sees Jesus as the history maker, I sometimes see it like this, that Jesus spent very little time in the synagogue, in his ministry. He was regular in the synagogue, but most of his ministry happened where? Out on the roads, people he met here and there. That's what the mission is he's, he's called, he's, he's brought in. So I then look at the way churches operate, and we seem to have reversed it. A lot of the stuff we do get up to is inside the church, and out there in the week, it's much more dilute and um, timid, perhaps. Yeah? I went to one church when and we were, actually, um, we had a service on this estate. I, I rather admire their style. They had a, um, uh, this, they were a great band of lovely Christians, um, and they, uh, their vicar moved on because he got a, a job somewhere else and they were waiting for the next vicar. <laughs> and they, they put the notice up on the church board. Um, the vicar's left, but God hasn't. <laughs> 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 
So you thought they got a bit of something about them. So I went there on a Sunday, and they were all worshipping Lord inside. And I thought, I just felt moved. I said, Lord, what? so I said, listen, let's go outside and worship God. And they pardon. But they were sort of, well, they were willing to humor this visitor. So we all got up outside. I don't know how they did the music. Well, I know, but I think we did a cappella. And we got outside, and there's a bus stop just by this church. And so the whole congregation now on the bus stop, on this, in the middle of this estate, singing hymns and going through the service in a public way. And this bus drove. And it was a Sunday, so there wasn't anybody apart from the driver. So he just stopped there. He was obviously ahead of his schedule. He stopped there watching us. So we, we sang hymns to him for a bit, and then he pushed off. But we were outside in the public domain. That is where Jesus makes history. Why is it that we have not woken up to the fact that we have been driven into churches by our culture? It's considered to be non-you. You you know, if you like that sort of thing, go away and do it privately. In the public square is where we should be honouring and proclaiming Christ. First of all, led by the Spirit, but then doing it as the Spirit leads. When I was working in Birmingham, we had um, a little group of us uh, preparing to welcome in the new millennium. So it was 18 years ago. So I can just remember it. And there, and we had all the churches in Birmingham gathering together, and we decided we were going to commission the only public work of art, which was explicitly Christian, to mark the new millennium. Uh, and we had, uh, we had an architect come, and we had various committees and prayer meetings and whatnot, and we wound up with um, a, a sphere which went round, uh, and on the top of it there was a flame, it was a, a big gas flame, and then underneath it was Jesus, the light of the world. And so you could see it all marked out. And we went to the, 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 the council, the city council, and we said, this is what we'd like to do. Here's our planning application. Because it was public. It was going to be put in Centenary Square, right at the centre uh, of Birmingham. And the officer said, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, you don't realise Birmingham's a multi-faith city. I said, oh, is it? And uh, you could upset other faith communities. No, 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 no. Well, that's what they said. So the committee, then we gathered, we gave out all the different faith communities, the heads of all of them, and we went round and we said to them, it's the millennium, we would like to put up this to mark Jesus, who's the light of the world. What is your considered view of that? And to sum it up, they said, this is your occasion, go for it. So we went back to the planners and said, and they said, oh, you'll upset them. I said, no, we've spoken to them. And they say, Please, go for it. Over they went. Mutter, mutter, mutter. And eventually we got planning permission. It was amazing. And we did. And, and, and on Millennium Night, we had this um, great um, sphere with the, with, the, with the light above it, the gas flame unlit. And we had um, a service with uh, the sea in the new year in Centenary Square. And Cliff Richard came. And that was the year he did the Millennium Prayer. Do you remember? So he came and did that, and he was a bit hoarse. He got a frog in his throat. But he came and he sang it uh, unaccompanied to, uh, just, to, just before midnight. And on midnight, he pushed a button, and this laser f- raced across the square, and the flame burst into life. Jesus, the light of the world. It was public. Well, the schemes of mice and men don't always run as you expect. <laughs> the way it was working, the way we did it, was the man on the laser 
had to let the man who had the, the, the ignition for the flame know that this was his moment. And he did it very well, actually. Um, so he went ching, ching, and it, it looked seamless. Now, the contractor who built this flame of hope, as it was called, uh, said, watch that gauge. That gauge will tell you when the gas runs out or it's getting low and you need to fill up. The, there's a huge tank. We tried to connect it to the mains, but the gas mains was too far away. So we had this big tank buried in the bushes. So we, okay, we're fine. So we used to go up every day and check and check. And then suddenly, one night, pop, out went the flame of hope. And I went and looked at the thing, and it was extraordinary. So we went back to the, the contractor and said, we looked at this, and it didn't go down. Why is it? No, he said, we, got, we told you the wrong gauge. That's the gauge which tells you the pressure there. You want the gauge that tells you the volume left. That's around the corner. And they, oh, great. <laughs> and uh, ITV rang me up and said, uh, David, um, could, could we interview about the flame of hope that's gone out? Because I was the secretary of this committee. So I said to them, uh, certainly, I said, now, um, I'm, not, I'm not free till lunchtime. Should we do uh, the interview at lunchtime? And they said, yes. Can we do it in the square with the flame? I said, certainly. Fine. Then I rang the gas supplier, and he sent a special delivery of gas, which was put in at 10 o'clock, and at 11 o'clock it was relit, and, and ITV turned up at 12 o'clock, and there was the flame. <laughs> and I was... And it's, uh, and, and the cartoon about, um, have you got any matches or something, that they did in the local press, uh, they, they gave me that as a, as a thank you present. It was public. And I think, what Luke doesn't do this sacred secular. Luke says that Jesus is the Lord of life, the lot, everything. And therefore, we shouldn't be ashamed to mention him, to talk to him, to expect things to happen in his name wherever we are, not just in church. At the workplace, in the, in the bus queue. I was talking today to a man who works at a tes on a Tesco checkout. And he's a Christian, and he said, he said, I feel the Lord has sent me here. And he said, and people know I'm a Christian. And I talked to them. He said, I do 960 transactions a week. And, and, there, and of those, probably 300 of those are repeats. And they're people I get to know. And he said, uh, people have asked me, they, they start to tell me about things. And, uh, and he said, it is amazing, these little conversations. And I can either direct them or point them somewhere. And they come back and I say, how are you doing? And they say, well, it's all right. And he said, you know, for a time, he said, I wonder whether Tesco's will think my checkout is going more slowly than others. But they didn't seem to mind. Um, they, they encouraged him to do it. Uh, except on one occasion, the, the manager came to him and said, um, why are you only speaking to young people? What about the older? Absolutely, he said. So then he speaks to the old and the young, so it goes even slower still. Um, and what he's doing, he's being a Christian in, in the public square, in the public arena. So my question is, where's your public square? Where is your natural place? How can we be part of what God wants to do in the whole of the community and not just uh, inside church. Luke, I think, would want to say to us, Jesus is a history maker, not a church builder. Yes, if you see, it's, it's a shorthand. Well, what I'd like to do is, is to suggest that we have a discussion now, just to look on the back of the, has everybody got one of those little leaflets as you came in? So 
basically you've got the combined Lukacs inside, and and there's some more. If, if you hold your hand up, I'll bring them around in a tick. And on the back, there are questions for reflection. Would you like to just choose one and see how you get on? Okay. And if you'd like, would you like to create groups? Now, I think we're all adults here, so why don't you sit with the person you'd like to sit with? And sit in the chair you'd like to sit on. <laughs> and then in half an hour, we'll come back together and just see what, what has come to you through Luke's vision of being Jesus the history maker and now the church following in Jesus' footsteps. Okay? Thank you. Uh, is there anybody... Oh, sorry, yes. This, uh, Graham's just bringing them around. Who, who'd like another? Yeah. Good on you. Thank you. You don't have to name them. <laughs> so, if you'd like to move to the, to the sides and form groups, and then we'll regroup in just over 25 minutes. <laughs>